The following audio is from Emanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emanuel is available at our website, www.myemanuel.net. And find with me Hebrews chapter 12. We're studying the book of Hebrews together. When we've come to chapter 12, the writer has kind of painting an illustration for us that our lives are like running a race. Everybody who's ever lived before us, they're in the stadium seats. They're cheering us on. Jesus is our coach. He's also the designer of the course. He's also the all-time record holder. And the Scripture says we run the race setting our eyes on Jesus. He tells us what to do if we trip and fall, how to get back up in his mercy and grace and receive his forgiveness. He tells us that we are to train for the race. And he talks about the discipline of a of an athlete when he's running that race. He talks about the relationship we have with him as heavenly father, not just as an earthly father who has uh, faults and inconsistencies, but a perfect heavenly father. And now in Hebrews chapter 12, we come to the finish line. And the finish line for every believer is heaven. You and I have uh, imprinted on our souls in the image of God a natural yearning and a desire for heaven. Recently I've been reading about the different generations that make up America. And in particular, as you might imagine, my interest is not just in the generations and their characteristics, but the characteristics that would lead them to or prevent them from coming to the gospel. I was looking at one survey, and it was about millennials who are atheists, all right? Have you got the two qualifying factors of the survey? They're millennials and they're atheists, and many of them believe in heaven. At first, I couldn't follow the logic, but then I realized exactly what it was. It's people who don't want God as an absolute moral authority in their life, but they really do want to believe there's something more than this life And when you die, you don't just die. And really, that's because we are imprinted with the image of God on our souls. He he created us immortals. We We have a kind of an innate longing and yearning for heaven. Now, the Bible doesn't have one particular passage where I can say, turn in your Bibles here, and it tells us everything we want to know about heaven. But we do discover that almost 300 times in the 27 books of the New Testament, the Bible's talking about heaven. And in Hebrews chapter 12, with this idea that we're running the race, here's the finish line, that's heaven. The writer is now going to call our attention to it. Now, we know, those of you who have been with me for this entire study of Hebrews, that every time this writer wants to make a point or he uses some evidence or an illustration, he always uses the Old Testament. So he knows that the Hebrew readers of this letter are going to think, if heaven is being in the presence of God, I'm not sure I want to be there. Because they know the story about when God came down and he gave the commandments to Moses. And there was thunder and lightning and darkness and his voice spoke and the Israelites actually said to God don't speak to us it's too much you just talk to Moses and Moses will tell us what you said and so the first thing that he's going to do in this discussion of heaven is tell us what heaven is not do you have a copy of the scriptures open find Hebrews chapter 12 verse 18 and the first thing that the writer says is for you have not come this this is what heaven is not you've not come to what may be touched, that is a a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest, 
The sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Now he's talking about what happened at Mount Sinai when God gave the, uh, the commandments. So that's, that's what he's alluding to here in this illustration. Verse 20, For they could not endure the commandment or the order that was given, that even if an animal touches the mountain, it should be stoned to death. Indeed, verse 21 says, It's so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I want you to look at these verses, and I want you to see some of the descriptors that are used here in, in talking about what happened at Mount Sinai. We read that there was a blazing fire and darkness. There was lightning and fire, and darkness kind of consumed that. When you and I uh, think of darkness and fire, we can't ever put them together because we think, well, wherever there's fire, there's light. But the Bible talks about darkness and fire together a lot. It also talks about gloom and tempest. We don't use the word tempest very much. It means a storm. And it's not just any old storm. It's an ominous storm. It's a, it's a really terrible storm. And it talks about the gloom that goes with that. And then as he quotes Moses, he also lets us know that heaven is not terrifying and fearful. These are all the things that the writer wants us to understand, particularly Hebrews who thought, man, I, I, I don't think I could be in the presence of God. They, they kind of thought the way Isaiah did. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when in a vision, Isaiah is translated right to heaven to the throne of God, and the first thing he says in the old King James Version is, woe is me, I am undone. And it sounds very Shakespearean. In our modern vernacular, we would say, oh no, my goose is cooked. Because he knew that a sinful man from a sinful people of a depraved planet had no right to be in the presence of a holy God. And so this is kind of that Old Testament understanding. And so the writer begins by saying, that's not what heaven is. Now, if you'll look at these words one more time, blazing fire and darkness, gloom and tempest, terrifying fear, those words do describe a place a place that's described in heaven a lot. In fact, Jesus would use all of these words to describe hell. So just as heaven, and that's our study this morning, just as heaven is a real place, so hell is a real place as well, where those who were made in the image of God, immortal live forever, and reject him, live forever separated from the presence of God. But the writer in verse 12, wanting to call our attention to heaven, says in verse 22, but we've come to a different place. Now, it's, a, it's interesting that he uses it in its present tense. We have come. Right now, we're, we're a part of that. He's not talking about the way we talk about heaven where we go, one day, someday, a long time from now, when I finally die, and that's the way we like to think of death, is a long way from now, probably won't really happen to me, even though we know it happens to everybody. We don't want to think about it happening to us. One day, maybe, yeah, then I'll be ready for heaven. But that's not the way he talks about it. He talks about it in the present tense, meaning that we have loved ones who are already there. There is a God who's already there. And we, who know Jesus Christ, we've already made our reservations for that. We're actually people of heaven who are made for heaven, who are still living on earth, even though we weren't made for this uh, sinful and wicked experience on earth. So we have come, and now he's going to give us three metaphors for what heaven is. Number one, we have come to 
Mount Zion. Heaven is a mountain. Now, in ancient times, and not just ancient times, I mean all the way until just recently, whenever you're going to build a city, and especially if the city's got to be defended, if it's got to be fortified, if it's a fort, if it's a castle, you build it on a mountain because in order to defend it, you want the high ground. Anybody who has any military experience at all would say, if there's going to be a battle, the one who's got the best chance of winning that is the one who's got the high ground. And so here the writer is speaking of heaven, and he speaks of heaven as Mount Zion. It's the high ground. And what he's letting us know is that it's a place of safety and security. Heaven is that which your heart has yearned for. And every one of us want to know that we live in a place of complete safety and security. We try to accomplish that for ourselves here on earth, but let's be honest, we cannot. Just two Sundays ago, in a church like this, a Baptist church like this, where people gathered together, they sang their praises, they're going to worship the Lord and turn to His Word, During that service in Sutherland Springs, Texas, a man came in, and now they're saying, now that they've done a little of the forensic work, he fired about 450 rounds, and 26 people were killed. In America, in a house of worship, no safety and no security. At a concert just over a month ago in Las Vegas, all of those rounds were fired, and over 50 people were killed. Just a gathering of people at a concert, no safety and security. We know of terrorists who hijacked planes and drove them into the trade towers. And we know, we know that we really do not live in a land of safety and security. It's not just true of our personal safety. It's true of our investments and our financial safety and security as well. You might be doing the best you can with your retirement and your accounts, but let's be honest, if everything really goes bad in a week's time, you won't have anything left. If you're trying to lay up for yourself treasures here on earth where Jesus says, moth and rust can destroy and the thief can break in and steal, then you're trying to get safety and security in a place where it doesn't exist. There is a place, though, that you were made for a place of perfect fellowship, a place where you would know the Heavenly Father, and a place where He's created it. He's called it Mount Zion, and it's a place of safety and security. There's a second illustration here in this verse. Not only is it called Mount Zion, but it also says, and to the city of a living God. So heaven's not only a mountain, heaven is a city. In Montana, we always think you either go to the mountains or you go to the city like they're separate places. But in heaven, it's the best of both places. Now, when he talks about a city, it's not just any city. It's the city of a living God. What, what does he mean by this? Well, he means that this is a city where you have everything that you ever wanted. Do you ever get uh, a little, just a little miffed that you watch a commercial on television for a restaurant that Billings doesn't have? Just like, oh, so you got to go to a bigger city. You got to go to Denver. You got to go to Minneapolis. You got to go to Seattle. And sometimes we take our vacations, and people from Montana, that's where they go. I hear you when you come back, and the ladies are talking about, oh, the shopping was great. You can find all these things that you can't find in Billings. When I listen to the men, they say, the restaurants were great. I don't know what that says about men, that it's just about food, but uh, it just, we, people are talking about, maybe you went and you went to a, a big sporting event, maybe a professional sporting event, and you just talked about, I was with 70,000 people, and they all went, incomplete. 
and you love that. So we talk about going to the big city, and people who live there, they like the fact that, you know, this is the best pizza in the world here, and my diner's right there, and I just, and it's, it's all right in my city. Well, the writer is trying to touch some of that when he explains to us that heaven's not only a place, a mountain of safety and security, but heaven's a city where God, it's the city of the living God, where God, who knows you, has designed that city for you, and it has everything that you would ever want right there. That's how he describes heaven. Mount Zion, the city of a living God. And then there's a third way in which he describes it. And he also says it's the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, whenever a Jew hears the word Jerusalem, it's like you and I hearing the word Billings. It, it conjures up something for him. Because you see, Jerusalem is his home. And so as the writer uses it here, and he's writing mostly to Hebrews who are not living in Jerusalem. They wish they were in Jerusalem, but because of the, of the uh, persecution that took place there, they're scattered all over the world. And whenever they would come to that time of the year, like Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement, they would go, oh, I wish I was back in Jerusalem. We've done that, haven't we? Maybe you joined the military and you were away and it came to Thanksgiving or Christmas and you wished you were back at home. Or, or maybe you got leave and you came back home. Or maybe you came home from college with your seven loads of wash for your mom and you were so happy to be home. And maybe it was, this is the time of year we think about it, right? You could smell turkey in the oven and had the sounds of home. And you went and you laid on your mattress uh, our group that just came back from Nepal, they had an incredible experience there. But I guarantee if you talk to any of them, Nepal's not their home. When they got home after, what, what did Steve say, like 30 hours of travel? Oh, just to be on your own bed. The smells of your own home, the comfort of your own home. You have a yearning for home. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what heaven is. Even better than your earthly home could ever be. That's what heaven is. It's a mountain of safety and security. It's a city of everything you ever wanted. And it's designed by God, who knows you, created you and designed you to be your home. But the writer's not done there. He's going to tell us some other things about heaven. What will we experience when we get to heaven? Well, we also discover in this last phrase of verse 22, there will be innumerable angels in festal uh, gathering. Now, uh, this tells us something about the fact that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surrounded by countless angels. Uh, Every now and then when I'm talking about spiritual warfare, and we're talking about angels and demons and the warfare that takes place for our souls, uh, people say, how many angels are there? And according to Hebrews chapter 12, they are innumerable. So I would just say to you, there's a lot. There's a lot of angels too many to count. Now, right now, all the angels have jobs. Did you know that? There are messenger angels. There are warrior angels. There are guardian angels. But when their jobs are complete, when the time comes for the rapture of the church and the, and the time of the tribulation is over and heaven becomes our eternal home, then all of those angels will now have new jobs. They will be party angels That's what it says right here. Look at it. It's a festival gathering. That's what it is. They're all together, worship and praise 
and party, and we will join them. We will join our voices with theirs, singing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the one and only, our Lord, our King, with all of the angels for all time in that celebration. Every now and then I meet somebody who's afraid that heaven's going to be boring. This will be the best party that you've ever been to. And they're just like, I, I, I just, I'm always amazed. People are like, well, they're going to have football and beer. Not that kind of party. The party that's better than your earthly desires could ever want or imagine. Surrounded by innumerable angels. There's something else here. You and I are going to be here. In verse 23, it says that there will also be the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, it's a really interesting phrase. I want to break it down for you. First of all, let's talk about the word firstborn. When it says the assembly of the firstborn, it doesn't mean everybody who's firstborn will be assembled. That's not what it means. It means everybody who belongs to the firstborn will be assembled. And really, the word firstborn should be capitalized in your Bible because it's a title for Jesus. Whenever you find it in the New Testament, it's always, always talking about Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus is the firstborn, the Scripture says, from among the dead. So when it says that's the assembly of the firstborn, it's people who belong to Jesus that will be there. That's what heaven is. Did you know that heaven is a prepared place for prepared people? Jesus said this. These are the words of Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what heaven is. So so Jesus Christ is preparing the place for us. Remember the big party I told you that's going on? Jesus is the event planner, capital E, capital P. He's the one that's putting it together. He's preparing a place for us. He's the firstborn of many brothers. The word assembly is interesting. It's almost never translated assembly in your Bible. It's the Greek word ekklesia. Do you know how it's usually translated? The church. So now reread it with that in mind. It says the church of the firstborn will be in heaven. You and I who belong to Jesus Christ, we don't just belong to him individually. We most certainly do. We are sons and daughters of God. But we also belong to him corporately. We're the family of God. We're the flock of his pasture. And we are his church. We are those who are called out. In the moment that you give your life to Christ, you no longer belong to earth. Your citizenship is not here. Your citizenship is in heaven. You belong there. You are called out. And the group of us together who have Jesus Christ as our supreme Lord and Savior, we're the church. Heaven's for the church. Years ago when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee, I was going to seminary there. Uh, I had a friendship with an elderly black woman, and she attended our church, but she didn't have a a driver's license. She didn't have a car. So we all took turns uh, taking her back and forth to church. One day it was my turn to take her home. And uh, we got in the car. It was a beautiful spring day in Memphis. We talked about the service and how great it was. And then we had several blocks of uh, just quietness where there was no conversation. We're looking out the window at this gorgeous spring day in Memphis, and everybody's outside because it's the first really nice weather day after the winter. And, And we can see that all these people who are outside, they couldn't be where they are. They didn't go to church and then get where they are. There wasn't time because we were just now going home from church. And so just after the silence, 
she turns to me and she says, have you ever noticed how everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to go to church? I never forgot it. It's really reflective of the millennial atheists, isn't it? I I don't really want God telling me what to do. I don't want to be some crazy weirdo fanatic. But I sure don't want to go to hell, and if there's a heaven, I want to be there. That's the way people are. Well, who's going to be in heaven? The Scripture says that the church, the assembly of the firstborn, let me point your attention to one other part of the phrase, who are enrolled in heaven. Do you know what that means in our common vernacular? It means pre-registered. It means who had a reservation. Since heaven is a prepared place for prepared people, you have to make a reservation to get there. Your reservation is in the name of Jesus. That's how you arrive. No, Nobody will uh, get into heaven by accident or a loophole or a technicality. It's not like you, went, you go to a, a, a five-star restaurant and you go, let's just stop and ask if there was a cancellation. And the maitre d' goes, oh yeah, I'll seat you right here. And you get in by accident. That's not how heaven works. Heaven is a place where they know you by name, the redeemed. Your name's been written in the Lamb's book of life, the reservation book. Nobody gets to heaven, and when you get there, the God's not busy, and he turns around and goes, oh, oh, we weren't expecting you yet. That is not how it works. When you get to heaven, Jesus says, Paul, we've been expecting you. By the way, you did good. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let me show you your mansion. That's what he's talking about. The assembly, the church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There's an old hymn It's called, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, I'll Be There. This is what it's talking about. There's another group of people there. There's not just the New Testament saints of the church age. Look at the last phrase of verse 23. And the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You might read this and go, oh, this is just another way to describe Christians. No, he's not talking about the Christians of the church age. He described them earlier. Now he's talking about the saints of the Old Covenant. He's talking about the saints of the Old Testament age. What happened to the saints of the Old Testament age? Well, we've been studying Hebrews together, so we already know the answer to this question. Especially when you look at chapters 10 and 11, we know no Old Testament saint was saved by bringing his bull or his lamb or his goat or his blood sacrifice. No Old Testament saint was saved by keeping the law. No Old Testament saint was saved because his good outweighed his bad. Each one were saved by faith just like the New Testament saint. But Jesus hadn't accomplished his work yet. So the Bible says that when the Old Testament saint died, the, those who were righteous, who the Habakkuk 2.4 says the, the righteous are saved by faith, still in the Old Testament, when they are righteous and they had faith in God, they went to a place called paradise. Paradise wasn't heaven. Paradise is like a waiting room. And, and it was sometimes called Abraham's bosom. Remember when Jesus is dying on the cross and he says to the thief next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, it's not another word for heaven. It's a different place. 
and they were there. They, they believed that the Messiah would fulfill his work. But in terms of history, Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't done that work yet. So every Old Testament saint that passed away through the veil of death moved into paradise where they awaited the work of Jesus. And one day Jesus went to the cross and the skies went black and the earth quaked. The centurion said, truly, this was the Son of God. The veil was torn in two. And the paradise was broken open. Some of the saints, even Old Testament saints, even showed themselves in Jerusalem. And then it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that Jesus took all those people and he led them into heaven. And when they went to heaven, Jesus was in line first. He was the firstborn from among the dead. Now, do you know where that title comes from? Now do you see it? Jesus led them into heaven. He presented them to the heavenly Father. They were the spirits of the righteous, Old Testament, but now that Jesus had gone to the cross, made perfect. Now they were made perfect. You and I, you and I live in a different time. Jesus Christ has already died. So when you die, you don't go to purgatory and then wait to get into heaven. The Apostle Paul says, now that Jesus Christ has already accomplished his work, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you and I die, we are immediately in heaven because Jesus has already finished his work. So there's heaven. It's like a mountain. It's like a city. It's like home. It's all the angels. It's all the Old Testament saints. It's all the New Testament saints. But that's still not the best part. Right in between the New Testament saints and the Old Testament saints, it also says in verse 23, and there's also God there. It's talking about God the Father, and he's the judge of of all. We last week looked at the fact uh, how, how God dis- disciplines us as a father. We'd have to confess that earthly fathers didn't do this very well. I'm a, I'm a son and a father. I knew the inconsistencies and the weaknesses of my dad. I certainly failed as a son, and then I failed as a father as well. But our heavenly father never makes a mistake with us. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul literally says, we know him as Abba, Father. The intimacy of knowing him as Daddy, of crawling up in his lap, of desiring him. And he treats us as his children. Remember the story in Matthew chapter 18 where the disciples started to figure out that Jesus was somebody? And so they thought, oh, the reason that he called us was to be his bodyguards. And they started trying to keep people away from Jesus, including the children, And then Jesus said to them, no, 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 that's not your job. You let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Part of what we experience in heaven when we get there is the the fulfillment, the consummation of the relationship that we have with God as Father. Every believer, every son of God, every daughter of God will experience that perfect relationship with God as Father. To those who don't choose Jesus, for those who reject him, they will know God as the judge of all. If ever there was a supreme court, it, it'll be God's court. Uh, it won't be a, you can't get out through a technicality, not a loophole. It's not about how good your lawyer was or your attorney. It's not if, it's not if you get enough witnesses. He will be perfect in his judgment And all, the scripture says in Romans that all the mouths of the world will be stopped. Everybody will know that they're guilty before the Lord if they have rejected Christ. 
And so God the Father will be there and will enter into that relationship that we were meant to have. And then the writer of Hebrews brings us to the end. It's, it's, not, this, it's not an afterthought ending. It's the, it's the pinnacle ending. It's the, it's the crescendo ending. And he comes to verse 24, and he's talking about heaven. Who else will be there? And Jesus. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that, that speaks a better word than the, the blood of Abel. The reason you and I can be in heaven is because we've received the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the forgiveness for our sins. But his blood, the writer here, is making sure that we understand that blood, that death, is different than all other deaths. The first one who ever died on this planet was Abel. He didn't die of old age. He was murdered. Abel was murdered. Cain, his brother, killed him and shed his blood. And so... The Scripture is showing us the difference between Abel and since Abel, millions and millions and millions who were killed and murdered, who died in war, who died from atrocities and oppressions, died in slavery, who were mistreated. Millions and millions like Abel who were were victims of the depravity and the sin of this world. He's making a point here. Abel's blood was shed, but Abel couldn't save you. You can trust in the blood of Abel to be your Savior, but that's not going to gain you heaven. Jesus' blood is different. Jesus shed his blood, and the Scripture says here in Hebrews that that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, not the replica that's here on earth in the temple mercy seat, but the real one in heaven. That's where his blood was sprinkled. And because of his shed blood, because he went to the cross for you, because you and I have received him, we have heaven, and we will join the innumerable angels throughout all eternity in the, in the greatest party that could ever exist where we rejoice in him. King of kings, Lord of lords, our ruler, our master, the only begotten, the firstborn, the one who, who laid his life down and took it up again, the only resurrected one, that's what we'll be doing. That's what the writer of Hebrews says heaven is. And he doesn't want you to miss it. He wants you to have it. He wants you to know it. He wants you to make that reservation that we talked about. So in verse 25, he says, See then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. Now, in this verse, uh, the pronoun him is used three times, and so it makes it just a little bit confusing. So let me reread it, and let me insert who him is. He is Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who warned Israel from Mount Sinai, but he's much, much more than that. Look at it again, verse 25. See that you don't refuse Jesus who is speaking to you. Even now, I believe that he fulfills the promise of his word. He said, my word never returns void. And so to the best of my ability, I've presented this word to you. I believe even now Jesus is speaking to you. He says, don't refuse Jesus. For if they didn't escape when they refused Jesus who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject Jesus who warns us from heaven. See, there's so many people, they want heaven, but they don't want Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody, no one comes to the Father except through 
me. If you reject Jesus, you are rejecting heaven because Jesus is all that heaven is about. When we get there, he's the focus of our worship. He's the focus of our praise. He's the reason that angels are rejoicing. He's why there is an assembly, the church, who had a reservation. He's the one who made the Old Testament saints perfect and righteous. It's always only ever been about Jesus. And if you want heaven, you need Jesus. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Maybe you're here this morning, and for the first time in your life, it it kind of made sense. The light kind of went on, and, and you realize that you were created to know Jesus and to spend eternity in heaven. If that's true, and, and you want to be certain of that, if, if you know that the day will come when your body will certainly succumb to whatever our bodies succumb to, cancer, old age, whatever it is, if you know the day's coming when you die, where will you be? You can make your reservation in heaven today. You could do that with a prayer that would go something like this. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that's why you came to die on the cross for me. And you died on the cross to pay for my sins. So I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. And the best that I know how from this day forward, I will live for you as my Lord and my Master. If you prayed that prayer right now in the sincerity of your own heart, the Scripture says, not just once, not twice, but many times, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, heaven isn't gained because you attend church or because you're baptized or because you had a confirmation or took communion. Heaven is gained because you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You no longer know Him just as Creator, but now you know Him as Savior and Redeemer as well. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wouldn't embarrass anybody for the world. But if you prayed that prayer with me just now when I prayed it out loud, will you just lift your hand up and you put it right back down? Say, Paul, I prayed that prayer. God bless you. Any others? God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you belong to Jesus and you know that, that uh, you have a reservation in heaven, but the truth of the matter is you're not living that way. You're living like your citizenship is on earth. Isn't it time that you start living knowing that heaven is just around the corner? And how many of you this morning, you, you want to recommit your life to Christ? And you'd raise your hand and say, pray for me. I want to live with heaven in mind. That's how I want to live my life, knowing that it could happen at any time, all over the room. Thank you. Everybody in this room that knows the Lord also has a friend or a loved one that doesn't know the Lord. Every one of us have someone in our lives that if Jesus returned today, they would not go to heaven with us. And how many of you would just raise your hand and say, Paul, pray for me. I've got someone in my life that I love. They're not ready for heaven yet. All over the room. Father, you've seen our hands. You know our hearts. For these this morning who prayed to receive you with understanding for the very first time, I pray that your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit would seal that in their hearts and that they would know today that Jesus is theirs, that heaven belongs to them. Father, for many in this room, who have been living like citizens of earth and not heaven. We pray that you would change us and remake us and remold us into the image of your Son and that we would live knowing that heaven is just around the corner. And Father, for our loved ones, who if you return today would not be in heaven with us, give us a word to say. Give us the ability to share. Father, do something in their lives that would call them, woo them to yourself. Use us. Let us look for those opportunities. And Father, let us be a church that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, that there's a heaven to be gained, 
There's an eternal destiny that you've laid out for us. You've designed us for a perfect relationship with you in a place where there's no tears, no death, no sorrow. And we look forward to that day. We give in our lives to you now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's one more characteristic about heaven that we didn't have time to look at. It's close to the end of the chapter in verse 28. And here's what it says. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe. Our kingdom, the kingdom that God has for us, his kingdom, heaven, can't be shaken. It, it's not like Social Security that will probably be bankrupt before you get there. It's, it's not like a reservation that was lost. It's not like someone's building something for you and it's not finished yet. It belongs to God, the perfect, eternal God, who will shake heaven and earth, but not, not the heaven that we belong to. That heaven, that place, that place kept for you, reserved for you, that place cannot be shaken. And our response? Thanksgiving, worship, reverence, and awe. And it's the perfect time, isn't it? It's the perfect time of year as we look towards Thanksgiving. What can we be thankful for? You say, my life's been pretty tough this year, but you can be thankful that there is a heaven reserved for you. God bless you. Go in peace. for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.